Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 34. Genesis 34. This is one of those texts that I am simply preaching because it is the next thing in the text. And uh, otherwise, well, put it this way, there's a wonderful old Lutheran commentator named H.C. Lupold. And uh, I just smile, sometimes laugh out loud, when I look at the end of a section in Genesis on which he's just commented. And he'll say, from the way he's used to doing things in his um, church setting, he'll say... I can't see how this text would ever make a proper sermon text. (laughs) Uh, Unless, he said, uh, regarding the the text this week, he said something to the effect that, well, I know some people just preach straight through whatever's next in the text, so I suppose maybe if you do that, you'd have to preach on this. But otherwise, no. (laughs) said, well, that's me. (laughs) Um, And uh, I appreciate... uh, good old commentators like that who uh, would pick and choose their sermon texts more. Uh, I also appreciate the emphasis, uh, the heritage this church has of going through the scripture and whatever we encounter, we have to deal with. That's certainly the case today. The title of the sermon from Genesis 34 is A Sister to Avenge. A Sister to Avenge. We've seen that Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, is back in the promised land. He's reconciled with his brother Esau. Things seem to be very good for him. He's bought a piece of land near the city of Shechem. As you'll see, um, seems likely that the city is actually uh, a relatively newer town at that time, maybe named after a young man in, in the text who's also named Shechem. <laughs> Uh, His father, Hamor, seems to be the prominent man of the city. That will all matter a a little bit later. But Jacob has just bought some property just outside of Shechem. And uh, he is is settling in a bit into a life seemingly free from care, free from concern, a life of prosperity. His holdings, his flocks, his herds, his pack animals, his servants, they're all increasing. He's getting comfortable. But he's going to find out he and his whole family are going to be reminded of what I think is is a big idea we should take away from this text. And that is this. God's people face danger, both from this wicked world and from their own hearts. God's people face danger, both from this wicked world and from their own hearts. We'll look at the account as we normally do first, and then we'll go to the applications of the text more directly. First of all, as we look at the account in this text, verses 1 through 4, <clears throat> we're going to see something horrible happen to Jacob's daughter, uh, his daughter through Leah, named Dinah. Shechem, a young man from the leading family in the area, Shechem violates and then clings to Dinah. Shechem violates and clings to Dinah. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, 
whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Well, Dinah, Jacob's daughter, Leah's daughter, apparently, uh, I don't think it's reading too much in here to say she was somehow intrigued by the the Shechemite women of the area. Um, As John Currid says, she is clearly attracted by their ways and manners, so she sallies forth into the big city as an apparently innocent and inexperienced girl. He says why Jacob allows her to do this unchaperoned is not stated. Perhaps he sees nothing wrong with it. These people are his neighbors. It says she went out to see the women of the land. And I want to be clear the, the emphasis of the account is not to place any blame for what happened next on Dinah. That's not the point at all. Um, but we see her seemingly unwittingly go into a very vulnerable situation. That's all we're saying. And what happens is that uh, this young man, Shechem, uh, the son of Hamor the Hivite, so a Canaanite, if you compare this with the descendants of Canaan, cursed Canaan, remember, in Genesis. Um, Shechem, a Canaanite, uh, son of the prince of the land, well, he's apparently a spoiled brat, as too often happens with uh, people in nobility, royalty, who don't have good character. He's used to getting what he wants, apparently. Just taking what he wants. That's what he does with this girl whom he sees apparently for the first time in his town. Somehow he he um, arranges things so that he, when he sees her, he takes her. He, he seizes her. He has relations with her against her will. He lays with her, so he rapes her. Uh, which is additionally indicated by the next word, he humiliates her. It's a, it's a very... Um, Uh, degrading word here. But then he decides, once he's forced himself on this girl, that he loves her. Now, we see that this isn't the only time in Scripture we see this idea uh, used rather broadly. I could say, um, here we see a, a good example even in Scripture of the worldly sense of love, romance, Uh, but in a very dark situation. He's infatuated with the girl. He he decides, after he's forced himself on Dinah, that he likes her even even better than maybe he thought at first. So now he wants her for his wife. I want to permanently have this girl as my possession. And by the way, of course, as usual, there's always questions as people work through a text, but... Um, just quoting John Currid here again, he says, the act is obviously rape as the verses in verse 2 increase in severity. He took, he lay with, he forced. He says, the last of these verbs normally means to afflict or humiliate. 
and it's purposely used to signify great social disgrace for a girl who has sexual relations prior to marriage. There is no evidence from the text that Dinah is in any way a willing participant in the act. And I think this is particularly clear if we compare this to another sobering text from the Old Testament, when David's son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. The wording is very, very similar about how things unfold. 2 Samuel 13, verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. That very phrase will show up later in Genesis 34. Such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And here's a very similar wording. Being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. So, this is rape. It's the way scripture commonly speaks of it. But as we said, afterwards, verse 3, Shechem, it says his soul was drawn to Dinah. Ironically, um, tragically, this is the sort of language used of coming together as one flesh in marriage in Genesis 2. Um, but this is completely out of order, to say the least, of course. Shechem takes what he wants first, and then he starts to view Dinah, maybe, somewhat as a person. And he starts to feel this, uh, he thinks he feels this bond with her. And says he loved her, of course, that this is a very debased form of love, infatuation. But he spoke tenderly to her. Literally, he spoke upon the heart of the young girl. This is language used in the Old Testament of actually trying to to speak encouragingly to someone, win someone over. He's trying to win her over. First he forces himself on her, then he tries to woo her. And then verse 4, he speaks to his dad. He says, get me this girl for my wife. He uses the same word that the text used of him seizing her, taking her that way, to say, take that girl for me. Get her for me, for my wife. This is a demand that his father take Dinah, again using the same word used for when Shechem took her to rape her. So Shechem violates and clings to Dinah, verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 12 then, Shechem's father proposes marriage to Dinah's family. One of the more outrageous um, examples in Scripture of someone trying to smooth something over that should never be smoothed over. Shechem's father proposes marriage to Dinah's family. Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. <clears throat> the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. 
And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Moses is leaving no doubt what the hearers and the readers should think of what's happening here, you see. In case you're wondering, this is something that should never, ever happen, he says. And so, in that sense, the sons of Jacob were right in their anger to an extent. They were righteous in their fury because of what had happened to their sister. So Moses is making us clear on that point. Verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Shechem's dad gives a speech, and then Shechem himself gives a speech. Amazing that they didn't wring his neck right where he stood. (laughs) This is what happens. Hamor thinks he can smooth over the situation by basically telling Jacob and his sons, look, if you just let your daughter marry into our important family, you'll be like citizens here. You'll have full rights, whereas right now you're sort of outsiders. Um, In fact, we can be one people. We can all intermarry with each other. You can be on the same level as us. Of course... Ordinarily, apart from this particular circumstance, this would have been attractive to most people in Jacob's position. Um, I, I could have status here. I could get more wealth by being part of the inner circles, all that. So Hamor thinks that's a pretty sweet deal he's offering to get what his son wants. And Shechem, he thinks he can buy his way out of this. And he's probably used to doing that. Again, he is son of the prince of the land. They have plenty of riches and status. He's probably done this before, maybe at a lesser scale. He says, I'll give you as big a bride price as you want and and more besides. Indicating sort of in a, a vague way, he'd offer compensation even to Dinah for his disgraceful act towards her. But he doesn't come out and say that. But he thinks money will fix everything. Or money or riches of some sort. Well, this leads to verses 13 through 24. And notice, I'll come back to this. Notice, Jacob seems very passive throughout this whole thing so far. He holds his peace, doesn't even say a word until his sons get in from the field. But now we see his sons are the ones really driving things. We don't hear a word from Jacob right now. But notice, verses 13 through 24, Dinah's brothers require one condition of the Shechemites. They require one condition of the Shechemites. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, 
we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now, it might be interesting just to know, again, as I mentioned back when we talked about the covenant of circumcision, circumcision was a thing in various cultures of the time, even apart from Abraham's family, Um, And often it was sort of a rite of passage into being of a marriageable age, for instance. So it might have made some sense uh, in this context, these Canaanites. Um, Oh, okay. Yeah, we know some people do this. But as Meredith Klein comments here, this was no missionary call to unite with the Lord's people on the part of Jacob's sons, but rather an act of sacrilege, a reprehensible misuse of the Holy Covenant sign for the purpose of inflicting vengeance. The Shechemites shared in the profanation of circumcision. They were profaning it, regarding it as a mere tribal convention and adopting it as a means to get wives and wealth. What it actually brought on them was the curse of the sword symbolized by circumcision. In other words, they ended up cut off at the end of this process. But everyone involved is treating circumcision here not as God's holy covenant with Abraham, but as just a device to make them one people. And on the part of Jacob's sons, it was a device for them to get revenge. But now Hamor and Shechem go to the men who go out of the city gate. What does that mean? Well, the city gate was the place to carry on business in this city, important city business. Um, It's where the inner circle would meet. Sometimes they would even have benches in the city gate because that was the meeting place for such things. And there may also be a connotation, those who go out of the gate as those who were uh, able-bodied warriors as well, maybe. But these are the men of the city who who participate in decision-making. And Hamor easily wins them over. Because he's the most important guy in town anyway. And he appeals, whereas he'd appealed to Jacob's, what he thought might be Jacob's desires and even greed on one hand, when he talked to Jacob and his sons, now he appeals to their greed. 
look, if we just do this one thing, yeah, it'll be painful for a few days, but once we do it, we'll have their stuff. Their stuff will be ours. We'll be one people, but, you know, we're running the show here, so. What they have will be ours. Hamor thinks he's a slick operator, getting everyone to do what he wants based on their own concerns and their own self-interest. So they do it. All the men in town, apparently, get circumcised. And that's exactly what Dinah's brothers wanted to happen. Because next we come to verses 25 through 31. We see that Dinah's brothers take brutal vengeance on the Shechemites. Dinah's brothers take brutal vengeance on the Shechemites. Verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives. All that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Shechem had thought he could buy his way out of this and pay to get the girl he wanted. And they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? What a mess. Simeon and Levi take the initiative to go and take care of business, first of all, with the men. They um, they were Dinah's full brothers since since she was... Leah's daughter. They were Leah's sons. It's interesting that Reuben isn't listed with them as taking his sword and killing the men. Reuben seems a little uh, a, a little uh, less stable of a guy. Uh, he's a man of impulse, as Derek Kidner says, who lacked their cold ferocity and resolution, for better and worse, for, at various times. Um, you'll see later when uh, some of the brothers want to kill Joseph, leave him in the pit. It's Reuben who, he doesn't tell them he doesn't want to do that, but he has his own plan to actually rescue Joseph. Uh, he's not quite as fierce as Simeon and Levi. <laughs> but Simeon and Levi are fierce young guys. You look at the timeline here, they're probably early 20s. Best guess. Um, but they say, okay, these guys can't fight back right now it's time it's time to take our swords and just wipe them out they'll learn what happens when they mess with our sister now it's only at this point as Steinman says that the author reveals that Dinah had been kept in Hamor's house so he says while not excusing the devious acts of Jacob's sons this may explain why they thought they had to use trickery to get a measure of vengeance or justice for Dinah the most powerful family in the city had, in effect, 
held her captive, virtually forcing them to come to some terms that would accede to Dinah's marriage to Shechem. I think that's right. It's, it's letting us know, oh, they had never let Dinah go, really. She's still at their house. So the brothers kill all the men and get their sister and leave. Simeon and Levi. Aside from Reuben, the eldest, they were the oldest sons of, of Leah. And then it says that the, uh, implies that it was the rest of the sons of Jacob who then came upon the slain. They came and found the situation, and then they, they plunder. They take away the women, the children, the animals, everything. In the city and in the field, everything. They capture and plunder everything. <clears throat> and, though again this was very wrong for them to do, there is some poetic justice here, because the Shechemites had planned on, they thought they could get all Jacob's wealth by intermarrying with them. Now they lose all their wealth to Jacob's sons. How does Jacob react? Well, it seems, by what he does and doesn't say, well, he's very angry with his sons, with Simeon and Levi particularly, but it seems that he's more focused on what trouble this might bring him than on right and wrong, and what had happened to his daughter. John Currid says, in Genesis 34, Jacob is too concerned with his acceptance in the world. How, he would, how would he be treated? He wants to, be, to offend no one. It might also be that these sons of Leah were, were used to their dad not doing as much for them and their mom as for his favorite wife and son. And they think they have to take care of business themselves. Dad's not going to do anything. Perhaps. But as Derek Kidner says here, the appeaser and the avengers, mutually exasperated and swayed respectively by fear and fury, were perhaps equidistant from true justice, meaning they were equally far off from true justice, just on two different sides of it. They exemplify two perennial but sterile reactions to evil. Often people react in one of these two sinful ways to evil. Either they underreact or they overreact. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Alan Ross mentions here as an application he has. Uh, he says, when spiritual leaders are indifferent to and fail to act decisively, about pagan defilements, those who are immature may profane the covenant by their misguided zeal. There's some of that here, too. Um, Jacob's sons were willing to profane the covenant of the circumcision just to get even. There is that. But again, what's the big idea of this text, this very sad text? Again, I think it's this. God's people face danger both from this wicked world and from their own hearts. And I think we need to unfold that a little bit. If we are God's people, and uh, in, in especially the Old Covenant sense of circumcision, Jacob's family especially belonged to God. But if we are God's people, we do face danger from this wicked world. We shouldn't get the idea that we can just comfortably live 
our best life now and everything is going to go well with no problems and there's going to be no serious threats. We will face danger from this wicked world, but then we'll also face it from our own hearts in the midst of that. So the applications of this text, first of all, dangerous realities in an impure world. Dangerous realities in an impure world. Uh, I want to talk about, about that from two standpoints. First of all, brutal passions. And second, deceptive attractions. Brutal passions and deceptive attractions. Brutal passions. This young man, Shechem, he's a good portrait of unbridled passions. And you need to hear this. The world lies about our passions. Including things like passionate romance and the sex drive God gave us. The world lies about our passions. Freedom for our passions is portrayed as beautiful and what everyone should strive for, right? If I can just be free to live my passion. That's seen as as the greatest possible good by so many people. But in reality, unhindered passion ends in brutality because we're sinners. And our hearts are not pure in their desires. It's not true that living by your passions isn't hurting anybody. People will get hurt. That's what happens when we refuse to deny our own whims and desires. People will get hurt. And ironically, we often do the same thing Shechem did here. We often try to make our selfishness look not so bad after we've already been hurting people. Notice, Shechem thought that he could sweet-talk Dinah after forcing himself on her. He thought he could buy off her father and brothers after he treated her and them like dirt. Too often, many sinners do similar things. They think that they can just put a band-aid over something that they've done. And it should everyone should be fine with that. God should be fine with that. That's how evil our hearts can be. And Shechem's father thought that by flattery and big promises and sly deals, he could make up for his son's uncontrolled passions. He wouldn't deal with his son. He just thought he could manage this. Don't end up like Shechem and his father, victims of their own conceit and folly. Don't try to indulge undisciplined passions, whether those passions are yours or someone else's. You're just making it worse when you do that. Unbridled passions are brutal. And they accompany brutal friends. (laughs) Understand that the radical pursuit of pleasure and passion is not freedom, it's slavery. A couple passages on this. I mean, these things should be obvious to us in our fallen world, but we still lie to ourselves and say, oh, it's not really that way in my case. Yes, it is. Titus 3.3 For we ourselves were once foolish, Disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Or in a more positive light, speaking of how we believers are now, are now set free from our passions, Romans six nineteen through 21 
Paul says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You were slaves to impurity and lawlessness, Paul said, and it leads to more lawlessness, and the end of all of it is death. Brutal passions. Secondly, another danger in this impure world would be deceptive attractions. There seems to be some sort of note here about Dinah at the beginning. Dinah was seemingly attracted to the ways of her pagan neighbors. And that attraction lured her into a tragic situation. Again, no, she was in no way irresponsible for what Shechem did to her. But but he did see her unique vulnerability and take advantage of it. And it's just interesting how it opens up. She went out to see the women of the land. There seems to have been a deceptive allure to the Canaanite city next door for her. Think also of Jacob. Jacob was seemingly attracted by the wealth and security his pagan neighbors could give him. But it seems like those attractions made him passive in the face of moral outrage. He began to behave more like Lot than like grandfather Abraham. Remember that? Same book, Genesis Whereas Abraham had been quick to rescue his captive nephew from his captive nephew Lot from oppression, he was a man of action in that situation. On the other hand, Lot was willing to sacrifice his own daughters to appease his wicked neighbors. Remember that? This theme is coming up again. So with Jacob, he had brought property near an influential city, and even when his daughter had just been violated seems like he still gave an ear to these deceitful promises of better ties to that city. We have no record of him objecting to this deal. <laughs> we'll come back to Jacob in a moment. But what attracts you to the godless world in such a way that you dangerously let down your guard? The attractions of a harlot are deceptive, and this godless world is a harlot. Scripture portrays her that way. As James puts it, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And the world promises more than it can deliver. It knows nothing of God's goodness. It knows nothing of solid joys and lasting treasure. And yet, as I think of Dinah growing up in Jacob's household, I can't help but think of Some of us, who've grown up in a very wholesome Christian environment, and we might be especially vulnerable sometimes to the world's lies. You might not have seen the dark side to the world's promises. In fact, you might feel something like Dinah might have felt. You might feel incredibly incredibly sheltered. Might even be some truth to that sometimes. 
But then, as you seek out experiences and friends, you don't see the strings attached. You don't see the ulterior motives of that popular friend or that exciting lover. And you don't see the devil prowling around in the shadows like a lion seeking to devour you. The devil's a liar, and so is this godless world under his sway. We have to be careful. Now, this is not, don't interpret this as, uh, well, we can have no dealings with the world. As Paul said, well, you have to go out of the world then. (laughs) That's not the point. But the point is, we need discernment as we interact with the world. And we need to see the world's deceptive attractions for what they are. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt. Listen to this. Your old self, your old man is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the old life outside of Christ to be taken in by these deceitful attractions and desires. Don't get caught up in that again, Christian. Be careful. Brutal passions and deceptive attractions. These are dangerous realities in in our impure world. But we have far more to concern us than those outside dangers, don't we? Especially when the cruelty and treachery of the ungodly comes crashing in on us in a dramatic way, with devastating force, we have to guard against our own hearts as well. So secondly, not only dangerous realities in an impure world, but secondly, dangerous reactions from our impure hearts. Dangerous reactions from our impure hearts. I see three examples of this in our text. First of all, cowardly indecision. Cowardly indecision. Jacob did his family no favors in his reaction to an impure world. He worried more about what the world would think or do than about what was good and right. And that provoked his sons to... Their sin. Do you find yourself on the fence when you should be bold in the face of evil? And then do you find yourself earning scorn from those who should have you as their example? It's a terrible thing when your own sons, as in this case, aren't convinced that you'll stand up for anything. That's evidently what Simeon and Levi thought about their dad. Now, certainly, Jacob was in a tricky situation. Granted, 
But he could have learned from his grandfather Abraham to trust God's promises. They were very specific promises to him for protection and such things. He could have learned from Abraham to trust God's promises and take bold action. He could have prayed about what to do. God would have answered him. He didn't have to do what his sons did in order to stand up for justice for his own daughter. But the picture we have of Jacob here in in Genesis 34 is decidedly passive. He's much too slow to speak up. He won't make hard decisions. He lets his sons negotiate with the man whose son had raped their sister. Apparently believing that, that they were willing for their sister to marry her rapist. Maybe Jacob agrees, maybe he doesn't with this deal. But the fact is, he won't make decisions. And he won't do anything. Cowardly indecision. So speaking especially to men, when faced with what the world can do or has done to injure or corrupt your family, are you content to let others sort out the mess? You might be like Jacob, a true believer, but miserably failing in this. Are you content to let others deal with the mess? Do you let fear and uncertainty produce indecision and passivity on your part? Do you drag your heels when it's time to lead, thinking someone else will take the lead? Maybe you're in a compromised position where it's unusually difficult to lead with integrity because you've already staked far too much on a naive peace with the world. You've already banked everything on the fact that I'm not going to have to stand up for anything. (laughs) And now that you think you might lose your influence or your benefits or your paycheck or your retirement or your business partners, you just want to run and hide. You won't stand up for Christ and righteousness and truth. You won't even stand up for your family. You cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus said. You cannot serve the Lord and Baal. So as Elijah said to the people of Israel, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But sadly, on that occasion, the people did not answer him a word. Again, similarly, Joshua, speaking to the people of Israel after they'd conquered the land of Canaan, he knew they still had idols at home. And he said, Joshua twenty four fourteen, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Make a decision and follow through on it. But there are other dangers which arise from our own hearts. Maybe we don't struggle with indecision. We can be bold and decisive and take action but in a way which simply returns evil for evil. There's that danger also. Secondly, another danger from our own hearts, unholy deceit. 
unholy deceit. Jacob's sons intentionally deceived the Shechemites, and they used the holy covenant of circumcision as their big lie. And you know, we are often tempted to think we have to fight fire with fire. The world lies, so we have to lie to fight back. We have to out-scheme those scheming against us. But we only think that because, as Scripture says, our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick, and our hearts forget God, and we think we have to do this all ourselves. Someone lies to our face, so we lie to their face. Someone doesn't fight fair, so we employ underhanded means as well. Someone slanders us, so we slander them. But you know, if you're trying to fight the devil, the father of lies, you can't imitate the father of lies. It's not how this works. You cannot oppose unholiness with more unholiness. The only way to truly overcome evil is with good. Now, in some settings, some unusually serious settings, like the one here, Dinah, in some settings... The good and right thing to do is God's appointed authorities using God's appointed means of justice and vengeance. I want to be clear about that since there was a context here of of rape and such things in the text. It's good and just for civil government to punish rapists. In fact, rape and crimes as heinous as that really deserve the death penalty. But in other settings... Sometimes you're not the proper agent of justice and vengeance. Or sometimes the offense is less than this. It's not a crime. It's just a really bad offense against you. But, as I said, in other settings, you still have to overcome evil with good. You may never do evil in order to defeat evildoers. Unholy deceit is never the right response. Romans 12, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And this this is just a a couple short verses before Paul then says, uh, there is an earthly agent of God's wrath, and it's the civil government, Romans 13. But he says... Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And notice, the Lord may repay whether in this life or the next. You may not see justice in this life. But there is a judgment day coming. But Paul says, to the contrary, and he quotes the Proverbs, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, there's also the maybe the most obvious danger from our own hearts that comes out in Simeon and Levi and the rest of the, their brothers. It's cruel anger. Cruel anger. Speaking of fighting fire with fire, we often react to moral outrage and destructive passion with our own unbridled passions. We detonate like a nuclear bomb. And that blast zone is big. 
Our anger burns. It's not a controlled burn. Our tongues and our actions blast anyone who might be in the wrong place at the wrong time at that moment. That's often how we react when something outrageous happens. Outrage without self-control. You know, Jacob gives further commentary, actually prophetic commentary, toward the end of the book of Genesis on what Simeon and Levi did here. Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7, he essentially prophesies. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So cruel anger was a problem for Simeon and Levi. But haven't many of us ourselves been young zealots before? Not controlling our youthful passions. We think, well, if no one else will do something, I'll do something. And this is what happens. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. <clears throat> now you may be passionately angry about some injustice. Some offense, large or small. But be careful, you're a sinner too. And your anger is quick to be cruel. Because we're sinners, our anger is usually not righteous. At least if we let it have its way, it usually ends up in unrighteousness. And it's cruel. You might explode all over people, but even if your anger does not visibly explode, it can still be cruel. Your bitter anger can freeze people to death. You might not erupt all over someone, but you can still be unspeakably cruel to them. Think about it. How cold and cruel did Simeon and Levi have to be to do what they did, the way they did it? They were cold. They were calculating. They methodically worked their way through that town, house by house, as they slaughtered husbands and fathers. And then their brothers carted off the traumatized women and children with everything they owned. All because one family in town had been cruel to their sister? Your anger can destroy families and churches, businesses, schools, cities and nations. And you'll devastate countless innocent people. Reign in your anger. Hold your tongue. Or don't touch that keyboard. In our day. And don't even think about murder. But you have to understand, it's anger which makes people murderers. As Jesus said, Matthew 5, 21, You've heard that it was said, 
to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. James, in chapter 1, verse 19, says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and perceive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So I come to my conclusion. This has been a hard sermon to preach, and a hard one to hear, I'm sure, because it's been very heavy on the law of God. And you'll find some sermons, as we try to follow the text, some sermons will be very heavy on the grace and the gospel of grace, uh, the grace of God. I do want to bring that in here at the end to remind you of it. But this text shows us what a mess we are without God's grace doing its proper work in us. But I do want to conclude by saying the solution is by grace and through faith. We don't naturally have it within us to live well in a wicked world. That's why we need a Savior. It's only by His grace and through faith in Him that we can be a holy people in a perverse world and not just become like them. So as Isaiah 55, 6-7 calls to us, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But you may think, yep, all these themes are hitting their target in me, but I'm too far gone. You don't understand the cycle of evil in my life. Actions and reactions. I can't stop that cycle. I'm too far gone. I'm just a coward. I'm just a liar. I'm just an angry person. Friend, it doesn't matter what you are. If you cast yourself at the Lord's feet. Remember the big picture and the big story. Even in Genesis, the Lord was not done with Jacob and his sons. And he isn't done with you if you belong to him. And if you don't belong to him, if you've never fallen at his feet, he warmly calls you to do that right now. You have to give up on yourself. Realize you are hopeless without Jesus Christ. Not only will he forgive you, he will change you. Read to the end of Genesis. He changed these brothers. He changed Jacob. And as Jacob reflected later, he he could say, even about these horrific circumstances, the Lord has been my shepherd all my life. And he's the rock of Israel. We have the hymn, and I think it's an appropriate way to close before I pray. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. 
Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome, God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your grace is amazing. And as the hymn writer wrote, that amazing grace saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And even as believers, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we've already come. It's grace that's brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. But Lord, help us not to fight against your grace. Help us to be honest before you and not lie to ourselves about our own sinful condition. Please work in us, in your people, to make us holy and uh, cleanse us and relieve us of all the filth inside our hearts. And if there are those here who are not yet your people, open their eyes to that fact and to the fact that they need Jesus as their Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen.